Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This is a special edition in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Today I'm speaking with William Kuby, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. His book, Conjugal Misconduct, Define Marriage Law in the 20th Century United States, published by Cambridge University Press, examines the complicated legal and cultural history of heterosexual marriage. Way before the controversy over same-sex marriage, Americans found multiple ways to object to certain heterosexual marriages and divorce. The commercialization of courtship through advertisements and marriage bureaus, trial and common law marriages, rising divorce and remarriage rates, interracial and those entered across state lines with different waiting periods and requirements, created a marriage crisis in law. It also created crisis in social policy and norms as people experimented with unconventional unions and attempted to redefine gender roles and expectations. The marriage market was rife with fraud and unrealized expectations. Often, the attention from conservative critics and journalists was greater than the real threat to marriage and the family. Kuby has shown us how marriage has been an area of legal contest and how it continually generated anxiety about the foundations of society. Here is my conversation with William Kuby. Now let me introduce you to the author, William Kuby. Hello, Will. Hello. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Uh, In your book, you have complicated uh, the view of heterosexual marriages. Most of us think of it as being sort of pretty straightforward Mm -hmm. in terms of the law and the custom, but you kind of made, you've really brought out all the complications that have been there. So before we get into the book, which is fascinating in itself, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Conjugal misconduct. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me here to talk to you about the book. Um, it's a really exciting opportunity. I I started this book as a as a seminar paper in a graduate school class. Um, I, I I mentioned this in the acknowledgments to the book because it really was um, foundational to the process, and that I um, I was really interested in the personal advertisements in publications like the New York Review of Books. I just thought that the um, this sort of elaborate and over-the-top rhetoric that people use to describe their um, their desire to wed um, and what they were looking for in a partner was just something I thought there must be a compelling history here. This is something to dig into. But as I started digging, I found that what I was really drawn to was the backlash against this unconventional heterosexual marital practice. And I wanted to see what bigger issues that all tied into. Um, What was it that was angering so many people about this seemingly innocuous um, practice of just advertising for someone 
in a magazine. So as I was looking into the 19th and early 20th century history of this, I, I kept digging and I realized that it tied into a much bigger set of questions about marriage um, and anxieties about marriage. So it, it turned into a dissertation, which subsequently turned into a book, but ultimately... So this is... So we're talking about 19th or late 19th century, early 20th century, right? Yes. I mean, I, I, I really start in the... Um, in the late 19th century, but I'm interested in the, the first few decades of the 20th century. Okay. Where does your, where does your book fit into the whole scholarship on marriage generally? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a rich scholarship in marriage. And I, I think that what I do that adds to that conversation is I really emphasize again, the backlash against these various forms of conjugal misconduct, as I call them. But also, I, I want to put those different unconventional marital relations into, um, into the same framework. So when I look at things like backlash against personal advertisements, I look at um, what was known as progressive polygamy or consecutive polygamy, this... Um, hasty remarriage after divorce, which angered a lot of people. I look at marriages that defied eugenic marriage laws, and I look at um, interracial marriages primarily in places where such marriages were legal, but still very much scorned. And I want to think about these different oppositional relationships, some of which have been explored by historians, particularly interracial marriage, um, in, in, in depth. But to say that these are not relationships that kind of stand in a vacuum, but rather they're, they feed into these bigger anxieties about the institution of marriage in the early 20th century. Um, and they speak to this broader perception that a marriage crisis was underway. So it's digging into that sense of marriage crisis that I think creates new opportunities that I, that I tried to delve into. And you know, with the uh, the recent controversy over same sex marriage and its history, it's um, I you know I, when I started reading the book, I thought that's where you were going to go, mm -hmm. and uh, and then I realized, oh my goodness, there's a lot more controversies to marriage than just same sex marriage, or the one we know about, which is you know cross racial marriage. Yeah. That there's and one of them that you talk about is. Uh, that the marriage laws across states were different. Yeah. Yes. And I think it's that diversity of state laws that, that serves as, I guess you could say, a central character in the book, because so much of this anxiety relates to couples dodging their home state laws and getting married in other states for the sake of being able to exchange licenses either more quickly or to exchange licenses that they wouldn't be allowed to, um, to, to exchange at home. So yeah, it's that, it's that difference of state laws. That's, that's so important. And, and to your earlier point about same sex marriage, I mean, absolutely. I, I, I wanted to keep this conversation focused on, I, I, I want to keep the book focused on um, conversations that were happening before same sex marriage became a major site of, of controversy and, and, and activism. But at the same time, part of what I'm trying to do is show how, how long the history of marriage as a site of contestation goes back. And to look at 
arrangements that don't always get talked about with the exception of interracial marriage um, that still raised some of the anger and um, moralistic language that we so associate with with same-sex marriage now. Now, there were uh, different states had different ru- uh, rules in terms of how long you had to wait uh, to get married after you applied for a license, uh, if you could get married if you were divorced, how long you had to wait after you were divorced to remarry. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about some of all the, uh, all the different kinds of rules? And there was also uh, issues about who could get married. Um, yes. That excluded quite a few people. Yes. So, I mean, I'll say this book is organized in such a way that each chapter really focuses on a different set of unconventional marital relations. So even talking about it, it's, it's hard to lay out all these distinctions, um, you know, in one brief conversation. But I'll give an example. Um, my, what my chapter on um, marriages that defied eugenic marriage laws um, really focuses in on the state of Wisconsin. Um, this was a state where that in 1913, a bill was passed specifying that couples really needed to prove, at least the, the groom needed to prove that he did not have um, syphilis and, and other venereal diseases before getting married. So what you see is the requirement of a doctor's note, basically, before before the marriage can take place. Nevertheless, Illinois did not, um, at this moment in the 1910s, have such a law. So you see a lot of couples or I shouldn't say a lot of couples, but enough couples to generate controversy who are um, crossing state borders into Illinois and who are exchanging vows there because there's a shorter wait period because they don't need to have a declaration of a clean bill of health. Um, And this angers a lot of people. It it creates all of this um, sort of dramatic language coming from newspapers, talking about how marriage in the state of Wisconsin is over because couples are all getting married in Illinois and how no one's going to want to get married anymore because of these new restrictions. Um, yeah. And I mean, and then in my, my chapter on hasty remarriage after divorce, it was very confusing to write because it seemed that every, every state in the, the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s had different laws about how soon after a divorce, um, an individual could marry someone else and what it meant if someone defied those laws on remarriage by going into another state when they came back was their marriage lawful was it unlawful was it bigamous was it void and so these conversations are brought into the courtroom they're brought into um, the, the sensational press and these seem to be things that were really angering a lot of people at the time. And I was just impressed by the, the drama of these many cases as I was, as I was digging and digging into them. Now, the, I want to get back up uh, to something that we, you talked about in your uh, introduction had to do with um, matrimonial advertisements, matchmaking bureaus. And this is, that was kind of in your first chapter, which is really very interesting because I kept thinking about, you know, internet dating today and how so many people are still bothered, you know, bothered by the idea that people would go online and it's like a meat market and you're putting yourself out there and you don't, you know, that's dangerous. You don't know who you're going to meet. Talk about some of the 
why these uh, bureaus, marriage bureaus and matrimonial advertisements, you know, became um, viable for people and what were the dangers and what were the critics saying? I thought that that chapter was really interesting because you could almost, you know, talk about today. Absolutely. I mean, I think that there really is, there is this connection to internet dating um, as a phenomenon that is both extremely popular, but also that seems to still raise those questions about legitimacy and that still seems to bring about a lot of criticism. So yes, I mean, I write this chapter... It, it creates a longer history that goes back into the later 19th century, but I'm mainly thinking about the turn of the 20th century. These, these advertisements that couples are placing in newspapers to locate one another are marriage bureaus. Um, and I think that there are a few different reasons for the criticism. One is out of a concern that people are not, that people might be marrying outside of the proper social boundaries, be they boundaries of race, be they boundaries of class, be they boundaries of geography. There's a real concern that matrimonial bureaus are opening marriage up too much in a direction that it shouldn't be opened. Um, There are also concerns about commercialization of marriage, that some of these bureaus are profiting off of a sacred um, event that should not be lining anyone's pockets, but rather should be found organically. And I think there's also a lot of anxiety about gender roles and particularly anxiety about women who are responding to ads or even more so placing the ads. This is seen as, to to, to say the least, it's presented as very unladylike and defying understandings of what proper femininity ought to be. So I think it also reflects those concerns about modern gender roles. And that's why some of the backlash is coming about. But there were dangers. I mean, you do come upon evidence of cases where people are defrauded, where people would um, place ads and then get robbed or a couple get killed by predators who they're meeting um, on I was about to say online, who are they're meeting through the newspapers, but we know these stories now. But what I found so interesting was that often when cases of this nature were coming into the courtroom, when marriage bureaus would go before the courtroom to see if they were legitimate or not, the word fraud was often used as a blanket term in the sense that it was used to say that these marriage bureaus defied public policy, whether or not fraud was actually being practiced on customers. So I think that there's both a real sense of danger, but more than that, a sense of moral danger, that these are sort of in a a figurative way, fraudulent ways of getting married, because they do not comply with standard ideas about what marriage and courtship ought to look like. Now, some of these uh, advertisements, we got to clarify, women were placing these ads too. It wasn't just men. Yes, there were. Go ahead. That seems to be like uh, a danger of a prostitution or something of that nature. It's certainly coming at a time where there are, you know, you're seeing increasing laws against prostitution. You're seeing increasing concern about prostitution. You're also seeing, I mean, all of this entire story takes place within a context of, of heightened anxiety over um, changing sexual roles, anxiety over uh, a, raise, a rising divorce rate, anxiety over in- increased rates of um, unmarried pregnancy. So yes, there's this concern 
that is this a form of prostitution? Is this a form of women being too sexually liberated um, amid all of these broader early 20th century changes? So I think it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of the language that I encountered is basically critics saying, no, no decent woman would respond to an ad like this, but we, we can almost forgive that. But, but if a woman were to place an advertisement like that, it really speaks to her underlying indecency. And that does seem to be where some of the panic um, is centered on the concern of women taking too assertive a sexual and, and romantic role and, and that potential connection to prostitution or white slavery. So how much does it have to do with, a, I think a lot, I would think, with urbanization, you've got a lot of young women, single women and men streaming into the cities where they don't know a lot of people. So they don't have the the natural family ties, you know, the local community that by which they can meet suitable partners. So, so this is also a kind of a an alarm bell for this is what's happening. You know, cities are corrupt. This is what happens to young people when they go to the city. Absolutely, and I, and I think that one thing that I found is that if you if you if you are familiar with the sort of traditional progressive era white slavery white slavery narratives about you know a woman going into the city and being corrupted or being taken advantage of and and, and ending up um, sort of brought into prostitution, you see some of these similar accounts taking place in a slightly new way as journalists are referring to couples who, and I guess this is not just about personal advertisements. This is about other forms of elopement that I'm writing about. So I, I guess I've, I've taken a bit of a, 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 a train away from here, but I, there, so there's concern about women being exploited and abducted through the personal ads. And that's certainly there, but there's also this rhetoric that I was just mentioning where um, couples are maybe going to take the train across state borders or take a boat across straight borders into a new territory. And there's going to be um, sort of a predatory taxi driver ready to sweep them up and bring them to the predatory minister who's going to marry them against their better judgment and against their parents' better judgment. So yes, this sort of menacing language of young people in cities being sort of abducted by these corrupting marital and courtship practices, I think is very prevalent in, in the stories that I'm reading. And again, I don't want to diminish the fact that there were cases of young people in cities being defrauded and, and putting themselves into situations of danger. But I also think that often this language of, of white slavery, this language of vulnerable young urban transplants is a way of warning against taking part in marital practices like the the matrimonial ads and trying to pe- keep people from taking part in an activity that's seen as morally indecent. So there was also concern about, you talk about eugenics and mm-hmm. the idea of, you know, back to that idea of who is, who is suitable, who should marry. And pr- re- this is all about reproduction of children, right? Reproduction. How are you going to what kind of citizens are they going to bring into the world? Mm-hmm. So you've got, mm-hmm. uh, I noticed that you talked about a little bit about people who were considered unsuitable, like feeble-minded people, people with lower intelligence, or uh, mm-hmm. what other situations? Was a convict able to get married? This is something that also varied 
by states. I mean, I mentioned Wisconsin, which had that law uh, primarily about syphilis um, in trying to prevent communicable diseases, primarily sexually transmitted diseases from being passed on to to children. But yes, I mean, in some states, you do see laws talking about convict status. You do, do see laws for uh, barring people who have been placed into debtors prisons in the past. So people who people who are seen as liabilities because of poverty. Um, what else do you see? You see other concerns about blindness, deafness. Um, and those are that's one side of the eugenic restrictions that are being placed on individuals um, in an effort to prevent them from getting married. But I was also struck by all of the marriage promotion that I encountered um, as it related to to affluent or middle class white individuals who were often accused of committing race suicide. Um, That's a term that's thrown about all the time, committing race suicide if they did not marry and if they did not have children. So when I talk about all these anxieties I encountered surrounding conjugal misconduct, one form of conjugal misconduct was also being suitable, but not taking advantage of that, not finding a partner, not wedding early, not having children. And that seems to be something that's also driving a lot of critics mad. So then you've got, so you've got a situation where who can get married when they can get married and the people who don't want to get married, mm-hmm. <laughs> these are problems, yeah. but then you yeah. have people who do get married, but they have unconventional marriage arrangements mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, gender roles and how they, how they view their marriage and how they choose to live. Can you, can you talk about some of the unconventional marriages that, you know, kind of people frowned upon because they kind of overturned assumptions about how marriage was supposed to work? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that the, the, the biggest one I came upon early in the project was, was trial marriage. And when I when I explain trial marriage to people now, I think the response is off, often, you know, isn't that just marriage? But if and I'll get there in a second, what it, what exactly is? But we have to remember this is the era that preceded no fault divorce, so divorces are are difficult to come by in the 1910s, 1920s. So trial marriage was an arrangement in which people got together, um, cohabitated. So it's, it's unclear sometimes whether or not they're legally married or in, involved in common law marriages. Um, but they're basically saying from the beginning, we reserve the right to abandon this marriage if it doesn't work, primarily if we don't have children. But this idea of a, a, a test case marriage um, that really not that many people publicly engaged in, but the stories of couples who are having trial marriages, um, who are saying our marriage is is a test case, that that really angered a lot of clergy, it angered a lot of journalists, it it angered politicians. I mean, there was a lot of outspoken discussion of how couples who had trial marriages, including the, the famed novelist Fanny Hurst in her and her husband, Jacques Danielson, that, that they could handle it, but they were setting a bad example for the masses. So, so there's a real backlash against trial marriage. Um, and, you know, again, I know that uh, there's also a real concern about interracial marriage. Um, I was shocked by some of the cases I encountered where even in states where interracial marriage was legal, that um, parents of 
primarily the white partner in the, in the marriage, would try to bring their children to court to have those marriages annulled on grounds that their their white son or daughter was not mentally fit for marriage. And that was the only explanation for this, this union. So those are some examples of the types of marriages that in addition to the ones we've already talked about that, um, that generated this sort of backlash. Okay, so the it seemed like when you, you talk about some of these examples, uh, like for trial marriage, it was it was a, a book written uh, by uh, I can't uh, remember Elsie Clouse Parsons. Yeah, she wrote a book. Uh, she was an anthropologist, and she wrote a book mm-hmm. about the family. And she mentioned in their trial marriage for young people with you know without mm-hmm. children, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it seems like the critics ran with it and accused her of just, uh, you know, a nefarious <laughs> intent yeah. to try to destroy yeah. marriage. And so a lot of these uh, crit- critiques or the critics were, they hadn't read her book or they just no. picked up, they heard something and they would just like have alarms would go off that everything was falling apart when really there were kind of very isolated incidents that didn't really amount to a lot, but they kind of made them amount to a lot. Absolutely. I mean, the, the Elsie Clouse Parsons book is, I found it so compelling in, in some regards. I mean, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's on something like page 500 of this long anthropological sociological treatise. Um, but somehow um, members of the clergy sort of caught wind of the fact that on one page she says one solution to the problems of society might uh, the divorce epidemic might be to encourage these forms of trial marriage. And on the next page she says this is still in some regards a form of prostitution, but it might be something that yielded results. So all this to say, she puts forth a very tepid um, suggestion, but something about those two words, trial and marriage, being used alongside one another is enough to set off this firestorm um, that someone is suggesting that there might be a useful change to how marriage is done that could yield some some good and, and at the same time fairly conservative results. So I was I was very interested in some of the forms of backlash I encountered. Oh, you know, again, as you said, a lot of them were from clergy members who, you know, admitted to not having read the book. I was intrigued by the ones that again said it's this is this is unacceptable in part because it's written by a woman. That a woman who is trying to do academic research on marriage and who is making suggestions about potential alternative marriage patterns. Somehow the fact that she's a woman makes it so much worse because she's stepping beyond the roles of proper femininity and she's suggesting something scandalous. Um, But I also found, you know, again, it's, it's very hard. It would have been very hard to put forth any sort of rebuttal because I remember one critic who I encountered said, you know, it's already immoral for an anthropologist to be writing about marriage because it's treating a sacrament as something as something clinical and academic. And one should never do that. There, one should never do that when discussing marriage. So it, it was the sort of extreme backlash that I think made it impossible for someone like Parsons to really contend with. And Parsons was having her own unconventional marriage in that she 
uh, for the time, she was a career woman and she continued to mm-hmm. work and had two children and continued her, her profession. And mm-hmm. that was considered, she, outs- yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was considered outstanding. I mean, and, and I think the fact that she was someone who was, um, I think she surprised people when she married, but then she continued to to both, as you say, to both be very committed to her marriage at the same time that she remained very committed to her career. And and, and you're absolutely right. At, at this time in 1906, this this was seen as as a very unusual approach. So yes, I think the fact that she was who she was already um, fed into the response to to an extent. What you know? Let's go back to the Hearst uh, that couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they were um, they got married, and but they lived separate in separate apartments, mm-hmm. and this was considered breaking what they call what was called the uh, the law of the home. Yes, can you talk about the law of the home? What was the law of the home? That was a a language a, a, a phrase that a uh, a family judge used, I believe. I, I wish I had better grip on better memory, but yeah, I, I think that. This was the language used to describe Hearst and Danielson. So Hearst and Danielson were, I mean, she was a a famous writer. He was a famous piano player. And they announced in 1920 um, that they had been married for five years, but they did not cohabitate. They didn't plan to cohabitate. They didn't have children at the the moment, but they they would make decisions about that later should they have children about what they were going to do next. They never did have children. But they basically the, the criticism of them was like, yes, your marriage is legal. No, it can't. It doesn't violate any any legal definitions of what marriage ought to be, and yet it defies the laws of the home. It's kind of an I know it when I see it, and I know that this is not a marriage. Um, and again, I think that parallels with a lot of the language that I saw while doing this book again. And I mentioned this earlier, but you see this in courtrooms where judges who are ruling on decisions about marriage so often use the language, this marriage defies public policy, and that's enough. And and I was so struck by this idea that you know, you're not citing any any legislation, you're not citing any precedent. And it seems to be this loophole. I know it when I see it, through which um, judges are able to make these declarations that a marriage is void. So in this case, you know, Parsons and, excuse me, Hearst and Danielson had a legal marriage. No one ever declared their marriage void. But one of the criticisms criticisms of them was that they defied the laws of the home in not cohabitating. And a lot of um, critics spoke out against them. Again, clergy, journalists, some of whom made that argument that, you know, they might work for them, but think about the impressionable masses who are going to think it works for them. This is going to set such a terrible example. And also there's a whole, uh, throughout this book, you can see that people are concerned about procreation and childlessness, marriages that in which People never marry, never bear children, mm-hmm. uh, was considered sort of unnatural and not not fulfilling their obligation as married people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I came upon that in the final chapter of my book. 
is a bit of a departure from the first five and there's six chapters in, in total. It's about the birth of this marriage education, marriage counseling, marriage training movement in the 1920s and 1930s. And basically, I, I see it. I spend the first five chapters of the book just discussing the chaos of these, excuse me, the, of these of these diverse marriage laws, the fact that couples are, are, are defying expectations of what marriage ought to be, the fact that mar- couples are dodging state lines. And there's this sense that the law alone is not going to is not going to fix this marriage, this perceived marriage crisis. So you see educators, including um, one is Ernest Groves, another is, is Paul Papineau, who had a, a very long career um, in, in, in marriage education. Um, but they're basically trying to intervene where they think the law cannot by what I see as a program of indoctrination, but by um, encouraging coursework in marriage, encouraging um, you know, early childhood education in the value of marriage and um, in procreation. Primarily, I should again add for middle and upper class white families, because those are the couples that they, they're concerned are, or those are the individuals they're concerned are going to perpetuate race suicide. But yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, I just looking at some of their language, Papineau, um, you know, kind of seems to just create these narratives about the selfishness and the cruelty of childless couples who are deliberately childless, who are, who they say they have their reasons, but their real reasons are that they don't want to interrupt their, their bridge club. And that's a quote in their, their devotion to bridge club is, is going to bring down human civilization because it is, it is depriving the the nation of more um, healthy white children. So you see a lot of backlash against um, couples that are married um, and white, but do not have children, I should say white and middle class. You see a lot of backlash against women who don't get married. Um, There's a real concern primarily among women, college women, women who are um, this generation of women who are entering college, their rates of marriage were were quite low. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see um, the creation of marriage education um, tracks in colleges. And the first one was at the University of North Carolina. But this effort to bring marriage training into higher education and family training and, and you know home, home ec in many ways, I think, responds to this concern that women who are pursuing careers in education are doing so at the expense of marriage and, and procreation. Now, it seems like there's a history there, right? Childlessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> there's, I mean, in terms of attitudes towards childless people. Uh, so let's talk about uh, this marriage education movement, because you, you talk about later in the book, it, it, it extends to today. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about that whole movement and, and what, what are the arguments? It seems like the recent arguments that are being made about marriage. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, again, I, 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 skip, I skip a few decades, I'll admit it. But I, yes, you did, but it was interesting. Yeah, but, but I, I think that there's – but I do think that something that Papineau and Groves are starting in the 1920s and 30s, you know, catches on. And, and, it, and it's drawing from this language that – marriage is forever in crisis, that marriage rates are forever falling, that divorce rates are forever rising. So I think that that's what's what's driving it. 
But I mean, what I see is these educators and, and counselors really, again, in, in a non-legal way, in, a, in an educational way, in a counseling, you know, through counseling, trying to address many of the concerns that, that I've picked up on throughout the, the, the book. So um, you see they rail against trial marriage. They rail against this idea that anyone would enter marriage without the intention of it being a forever commitment. They're, they're, you know, they're, they are eugenicists. Paul Papineau was huge in, in, you know, perpetuating or bringing, bringing a eugenic sterilization program to California. So, I mean, they are, they're driven by this idea to increase um, procreation among those they see as suitable and to decrease it among those they see as unsuitable. Um, They're not particularly big fans of, of interracial marriage. So in some regards, they're trying to create programs um, in schools and conferences and in, in, in therapy that are going to um, tell people how to get married properly. Um, yeah. And I, and I see, I see a lot of their, their um, message sticking. And I think if one were, I, I encourage folks to read works by Kristen Solello and Rebecca Davis, who really go into the movements in the later 20th century, um, but when you see the fact that, you know, Paul Papineau's son, David Papineau, founded an institute at Rutgers that has continued to spread his message, um, that you continue to hear organizations saying, you know, we need to raise the marriage rate, we need to make marriage more popular, marriage is a failing institution that needs to be saved. I mean, I think a lot of that language has its origins in this earlier 20th century period when when educators like Groves and Papineau are basically popularizing the idea that there's a marriage crisis at hand. Now, um, another issue that kind of continues on with the whole idea of polygamy, Mm -hmm. you know, this uh, fear uh, of or alarm about the possibility of polygamy, especially with uh, serial monogamy, Mm -hmm. you know, that you're having multiple marriages, one after the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, uh, that, the, the fear of, of polygamy is still sort of with us, mm-hmm. uh, particularly since we've had this uh, same sex, uh, law yeah. passed. Now people are saying, well, if that can happen, well, why couldn't you have three people or four people enter into a marriage agreement? Yeah. And I mean, that was something that I wanted to, you know, in a limited way address in the book's epilogue. I mean, what I, what I see it, what I, what I think one thing I've, maybe succeeded in historicizing a bit in this book is the the slippery slope argument, this idea that, you know, you know, what, if we allow this, what's next? And I mean, one thing that I was fascinated by as I was, um, as I was doing this research was, I guess what I would say is how quickly the person who is criticized for an unconventional marital pattern um, becomes the marital gatekeeper along the way. And I see that in a lot of places. I mean, I'll mention a couple examples. I mean, Fanny Hurst and Jacques Danielson themselves were very quick when they were criticized for being involved in a trial marriage. They were very quick to say, you know, we are not bohemians. You know, we, you know, Fanny Hurst said, my, my hair is clipped. We're not, you know, basically equivalent of we're not, we're not hippies. We're not trying to challenge, we're not trying to challenge gender standards. We're not out in the streets protesting. We're just trying to have a quiet private life. Um, one group that I look at is, is interracial marriage societies that, that were, you know, in the one developed in the later 19th century and one in the the 1930s, the Penguin Club, which was a New York institution that, that welcomed interracial couples to come and find community. 
I was struck by, in some regards, how some of the same rules were put into place that that I had been seeing throughout the book. So the Penguin Club did not welcome childless couples. It did not welcome children, or excuse me, it did not welcome families that didn't go to church. It was still trying to create this separation between decent and indecent, um, between marriages that were acceptable and marriages that were immoral in a lot of regards. So in one, one concern that I do express in the epilogue to the book is how quickly this slippery slope argument was, uh, was, um, well, I mean, the, the slippery slope argument about polygamy has been raised sort of on all sides of the political divide. And if you think about um, the Supreme Court Obergefell def- dis- dissents by Roberts and um, and Thomas, I mean, there's again this 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 alarm that you know that um, polygamy could be next. But I also think you see newly admitted same-sex couples being very eager and excited to separate themselves from polygamy to say, you know, our, our form of marriage is decent, this form of marriage is indecent, um, to, to, to maintain that hierarchy now that they have access into it. And I, and I don't, you know, I, I try not to um, be too outspoken about contemporary trends in my book, but I do think I, I, I want to raise some alarm, again, about how quickly, um, about marriage's capacity to create um, to create those hierarchies, to create those divides, and about how quickly folks who gain access to the rights and benefits of marriage can be to try to keep themselves apart from those who they see as um, lower or who, who, who practice forms of conjugal misconduct in their eyes. It seems like the arguments in the early 20th century were more about social implications of uh, different kinds of marriages mm-hmm. and that now the arguments for different kinds of marriages are more about individual fulfillment just writing some. I wonder what do you think about that? Well, that if and you know it's my happiness, individual happiness. I have a right to pursue happiness. Yeah. And there you know this is my choice versus the earlier 20th century where their arguments were about uh what's good for society and uh yeah. You know it, is that would you say that that's kind of what's going on? I think I I'm going to I'm going to talk through it a little bit cuz I have to think about it as I as I go, but I think that there's a lot to that. I mean, I, I know that I certainly encountered, you know, again, going back to trial marriage, some of these sources, again, that it, it works, you know, people should not be so selfish to think that something that works for them is good for society. And the fact that, um, and then you see judges who are refusing to separate um, unhappy, in some cases, underage um couples who are in some cases in abusive relationships, the argument is that like, yes, it's unfortunate that one or both of you should have to suffer, but we owe it to society to keep this in marriage intact because we, we cannot create a precedent that allows for divorce or annulment um, at one's leisure. So I do think that in the, in the, the 1910s, 20s, 30s, there's, there's a lot of concern about sacrificing individual happiness or free will for the sake of maintaining um, maintaining stability in marriage and procreation. I mean, that's what eugenics is all about in many regards. So yeah, I mean, I, I certainly see um, arguments that have been recently applied to same-sex marriage, for instance, um, and, and in, in many regards, I guess, I guess polygamy as well about, you know, this uh, individual freedom, individual right to fulfillment, as you say, individual right to 
create family along the lines that one desires it. But I'd still say that the the backlash against those practices remains. This is this is bad for society. This is um, this is harmful. Um, to I mean, this defies my religious convictions. This is this defies my idea of what family should look like. So I guess in some regards that the pro argument has consistently been about personal fulfillment, but the con argument has been more about the the, the harms, the social harms that that unconventional relations can can provoke. Yeah, and if, if you but the the case on the same sex marriage case in the Supreme Court, you know, I'm sure yeah. you've read it. Um, the, the case for it was very much. A, on the, the no individual should because marriage is so fundamental to be, human belonging and happiness mm-hmm. it was very much an individualist kind of argument they made by the court no absolutely i mean that kennedy in particular his his language um about marriage as a fundamental right and marriage as a positive good um was was very strong. I mean, that was that was the driving force. I mean, and I and I, and I have to say, we, we marriage scholars tend to be cynics to a point. So you know, in my epilogue, there is <laughs> there is there is some criticism of, of of that language in the way that I think that it it, it well, it's that very romantic language <laughs> for one. Yeah, you know, like if you're not married, you're not really fully humanly, you know, uh, fulfilled. And which is uh, a lot of people are defying that today because we've got. Uh, which is I've got some theoretical questions for you. One sure. is the future of the future of marriage. I mean, it seems like to me that m- more people are uh, delaying marriage or opting out of marriage altogether and arguing we're fine without mm-hmm. being married. We don't have to be married to be fulfilled or be, you know, fully human or be uh, whatever. So uh, it, it seemed like the court's decision was using retro language. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think on a lot of regards, it, it, it's that that language of, I think that those arguments, we don't need marriage, we're fine without marriage, feed into this this continuing perception of marriage crisis because they can, there there's are arguments marriage has been deinstitutionalized. I mean, I, I don't really buy that argument because marriage confers so many rights and privileges that I, I think that marriage is still a, a very much a part of the social fabric for, for good and for ill. But yes, I think that, in some regards, I mean, I, I tend to see, you know, n- not knowing what the future of, of the court holds, but at least in the moment in which in which the, the decision was written, I, I definitely see it as um, a victory for the institution of marriage. I see it as a way of upholding the um, the validity, the value, the in, in many regards, the supremacy of marriage against challengers. So, I mean, that, that again, for me as a cynical marriage scholar, um, raises some concerns, but I do think, yes, this is, this is an argument that basically in many ways reacts against this idea that it's okay, that people are charting their own courses and suggest that. Oh, I mean, I think it's, I'd see it, especially, you know, in under 35, Mm -hmm. there seems to be sort of not as much, um, drive to marry. Anyway, I wanted to ask you another question. Uh, Should the state, uh, and this is just a theoretical question, but should the state uh, get out of the marriage business? Meaning, what I mean by that, you know, children and women have rights now that they didn't have in the early 20th century. And there's a lot of ways to assure, uh, you know, uh, children that children are taken care of. 
And, you know, we know we can know who the father is. We you know, there's all kinds of mechanisms to protect them. There's and women uh, don't are protect, have their own credit. They have jobs. They have a lot of their own rights. So why shouldn't the state just get out of the marriage business and let it be a cultural institution that people participate in or don't? Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, I'm always I, I, I I'll I'll quote some, I'll cite someone else. It's, it's Tamara Metz's work in Untying the Knot. She's a political scientist. And, and I found her work very helpful for me to think this question through. Um, I mean, her argument is that there, there, there do need to be systems in place and in more robust systems in place for forms of, of caregiving, for relationships in which um, individuals rely on one another for, for support, for, you know, for, for financial stability, for, for healthcare, et cetera. Um, and I don't know that um, our, our national infrastructure supports that fully, but but yeah, I mean, I I certainly think that I I hope that reading my work and related work does help to raise questions about the ways in which we tend to privilege romantic um, monogamous connections above all others. And I, I do have an issue with the sort of unquestioned idea that, of course, married families deserve that protection. Of course, the state should be um, tending to the, um, the lives and livelihoods of marriage people. And of course, some of those benefits should not go to others. Um, I, you know, I always like to um, teach with an example, and I guess it goes back about a decade now, but I started teaching it a while ago about a case in, in the United Kingdom where two elderly sisters had cohabitated for years and years and years. And yeah, so yeah, that's a good example. I mean, there's a lot of people who have all kinds of different relational arrangements yeah. that take care of each other in all kinds of ways. So this is what I'm saying. Why, you know, uh, this is, do we, I think we have mechanisms, but I think they need to be strengthened. I would agree. They would have to be strengthened. I would agree. But I mean, I will say, I mean, I I don't, I've I've devoted the last decade to this, so I don't mean to sound smug and suggest everyone should know this, but I do, I'm surprised that when I, about how often I raise these concerns about, um, about the sort of, uh, the way in which marriage sits on a pedestal and the way in which marriage provides these benefits that are on question. And so often I hear, you know, I never thought about that before. I think that there's something about how deeply marriage um, has been tied into um, our understanding of, I guess, the, the American, the human life cycle, that it's, it's unquestioned in so many regards. And it, in some regards seems it, it seems like it, it can be an act of, I don't want to say violence, but an act of aggression to even question that one's marriage does not, should not entitle one to additional protections. But there's something about, I think, the the continued elevation of marriage in American culture that that remains intact and it makes it hard to have these conversations. So I'm often told that when I raise concerns about um, finding ways to um, create a safety net for all that is not right. tied right. to romantic relationships. I'm often greeted with, you know, sort of a pat on the head, like, oh, that's a sh- such a nice idealistic um, 
way of thinking about it. Now let's get with the program. And, and in some regards, I get it. And in some regards, I think we, we can do a little better. So where do you think your your book uh, will be most helpful? I mean, you've, you've pointed out lots of interesting things in your book. I think it's helpful in a lot of different ways. But what, do you, what would you hope will uh, come from this? That's a good question. <laughs> it's all been, I'll to be honest, first time, first time author. It's all been a little bit. Every, every step of the way has been new. Um, I'm, I'm hoping, um, I'm hoping that it helps to pave the way for, for additional studies of marriage that might um, dig into some of the questions I've raised about the continued. Um, Again, that th- th- maybe try to tear apart this this social hierarchy with marriage at the top that we're talking about. You know, for I, I, one thing that that I think that I'm I'm proud of about the book is that I, I think it it does tie together um, a legal approach, a cultural approach, um, a, you know, history of sexuality approach. So I'm hoping that this book can reach a wide set of audiences. I'm hoping that this is a book that you know that students can enjoy. I'm also hoping that this is a book that um, that that and any reader can can enjoy. Um, and I'm, I'm serious about writing in an accessible way, and I, I hope that pays dividends. Um, you know, and, it, and it's certainly given me some ideas about future paths that I want to take. I'm, I don't, um, you know, I, I've never been the sort of person who has my next six projects planned out, but it's opened a lot of um, new possibilities for me and directions I might go. Well, oh. Will, thank you so much. You've been generous with your time. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Study. This podcast has been in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger.